Welcome to Totally Biased Media, the podcast where three brothers who know nothing about video games tell you everything they know about video games. I'm Jordan, and some of you may die, but that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. I'm Jason, and I cherish peace with all my heart. I don't care how many men, women, and children I need to kill to get it. I'm Jackson, and I'm doing my part. Helldivers 2 is making waves in a way that both fans of the original and its developers never could have imagined. We're diving in to tell you all about this wild alien adventure and why everyone is going crazy for it. Let's get into it. Helldivers 2. Robot Vietnam. Yeah. This is a game that it's been on the horizon for a while now. And there was always a part of me that was like, eh, that could be fun. But it was never it was never one that I would have imagined in a million years would be on the verge of breaking like Steam concurrent player records and all that stuff. Like the reception to this game has been astronomical in a way that I could have never guessed in a million years. Yeah, it's definitely taken a much bigger turn than anyone could have expected, I think. Not only is it in, I think, the top 30 highest concurrent players on Steam now, it has beat the concurrent players of all of Sony's releases on Steam uh, total together. It's beat all of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that's really just a wild concept in general that this is the first time that sony's done this whole like simultaneous release for one of those games and it is absolutely exploded yeah. in in such a, a major way well you have to think about how many games that includes because that includes god of war uh horizon zero dawn not the racing one that's xbox spider-man and spider-man miles Morales, death stranding and i want to say there's something else but i can't think of it yeah, I mean, it's worth noting that those are all single-player games. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a big part of it. Yeah. Well, not only are they single-player games, they're single-player games that released on PC much later than they originally released. Yeah. But, I mean, regardless, this game is is blowing up in a big way, mm. even when you, you know, take it out of that equation. It blew up so much you couldn't play it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess let's sort of address that elephant in the room before we get going too much further. Um, we're going to say a lot of positive things about this game in this episode. I want to go ahead and get in front of all of it and say, maybe don't buy it yet. Yeah. It's it's better. It's getting better. There are still server issues, and it's still a very buggy experience. I'm going to go ahead and also get it out of the way. You fight bugs in this game. We're going to talk about bugs in the game. I'm not going to make the joke, even though it's right there. <laughs> Let's just say that EDF is no longer holding the crown. I don't think they expected that they would get such good reception, uh, which led to yeah. them having to cap the server count at 450,000 because otherwise the servers were breaking. <laughs> and thankfully that, that number has been upped at least once already, maybe a second time. It's now set to 700,000. <laughs> I haven't had issues connecting initially in a couple of days now. I have still had issues with matchmaking and uh, just the game getting a little hung up between missions. And I've had a few times where I didn't get progress for something as far as I could tell. Like I completed a mission, but I didn't actually get the resources I was supposed to get. 
That hasn't happened in like a week now, though. I mean, there's a lot of stuff you got to work through if you're going to play this game. Now, that being said, the actual gameplay itself is fantastic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it is the best. I guess it's weird to compare because Titanfall 2 is a first-person shooter, and this is a third-person shooter, but it's the best gunplay I've seen in the game since Titanfall 2. I mean, I wouldn't even necessarily say it's the gunplay that's really the selling point, though. No, I think that this it, yeah. is just a game that it is so much fun to just drop into a world with some friends, kill a bunch of bugs or robots or whatever, mm-hmm. and cause a bunch of mayhem in the process. Yeah. And I think that between that and the fact that the game is pretty rewarding along the way, I I think there is a lot to on display here. Yeah. And I think... That's why so many people are really vibing with it. It's one of the most engaging shooters I've played in a long time. Like, just through the gameplay itself, like, not even talking about progression. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, well, I mean, I think the big thing is just how many enemies there are. Generally, like, anytime you're in a firefight, it's never against just, like, one or two enemies. There are entire battalions coming at you one (laughs) after another. And especially when you're on the bug planets, it feels like it's never-ending sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, And adding in the fact that you and your teammates can just call down missile barrages so often, it just creates a lot of chaos. It's really fun to play with. So I guess I guess let's step back just a little bit before we dive too, too far in and kind of set up what Helldivers is. So uh, Helldivers 1 was a twin-stick shooter. It was still a multiplayer-centric game. It still had a lot of the... You know, you could call in orbital strikes and explosives and heavy weapons. It still had that, and it still had a big emphasis on everything you did had the potential to kill your own teammates. (laughs) Um, But because of the fact that it was this twin-stick shooter and it didn't have sort of the same funding and long-term support that this game is clearly going to have, it didn't really get to the levels that Helldivers 2 is. Um Helldivers has sort of taken that formula and turned it into a third-person shooter. And other than that, I mean, it's it's pretty similar in concept. You are playing as a member of a uh, a military of a science fiction super in the in the future version of Earth, <laughs> where Earth has now extended to other planets. Basically, the government of Earth is now expanding beyond just the surface of Earth. And you do that by getting a squad of Helldivers. They drop in on a planet, kill a bunch of aliens or robots or whatever, and make that planet part of Earth's, you know, forces. I I don't know how to describe it. Yeah, Earth's empire. Well, technically, in the story, Earth already, like, claims dominion over all those planets. So whenever you're (laughs) going to another planet, you're not, it's, it's not an invasion. You're liberating it. (laughs) <laughs> Even though no one right. lives there and it's clearly better suited for the uh, the bugs or the robots <laughs> than it is for people, yeah. you're liberators, right. heroes, going to save the galaxy. Now, I will say, the robots definitely seem like they do just want to destroy all life. The bugs, I, I, I think there's a little more to that. The bugs are just chilling. Yeah. Yeah. The game has this whole very, like, tongue-in-cheek uh, sense of humor about the fact that you are spreading democracy to these planets and it has all this uh over the top propaganda that it's showing you to to reinforce that you're the good guys and you're spreading peace and prosperity across the galaxy <laughs> and i think that that stuff is always funny like it always yeah. hits 
but also i think the way that that manifests in gameplay is so good because even at the very beginning when you haven't unlocked a whole lot of requisitions you don't have a whole lot of things you can drop in you still feel very powerful because you're using like military grade <laughs> weapons on bugs <laughs> um it is it is very cool like from the minute you drop in you can just go guns blazing and kill dozens and dozens of enemies and you know destroy buildings and accidentally kill your teammates and all sorts of fun stuff i really like how each planet has a uh liberation meter that shows how much of the planet's been liberated uh and the funniest part yeah. with that is every time you finish a mission it only goes up like one one thousandth of a point <laughs> <laughs> right because this is a shared progress across all players yeah. so there could be you know there could be a hundred thousand players all actively trying to take that one part of uh, of a solar system or something at the same time so your progress is very small, but when you multiply that out by so many yeah. players, it's it's very cool to see that work together like as a like as a whole player base working towards one goal. I think that's one of the coolest parts of the game because like even though each match is only four players, it still feels like it's a community working towards something. Like uh, in a in another popular live service game, Destiny, they've tried to do these sort of like community events before but they're always very lackluster and it never feels like you're actually doing anything and like i feel like what helldivers is doing with the the liberation meter is what they want to achieve yeah well i mean i think it all comes down to presentation right when right. you're playing right. destiny the entire time like the game acknowledges that there are other guardians out there you know doing similar stuff to what you're doing but it also always treats you as if you are the only guardian doing any individual right. task like yeah your yeah. character is a hero and every other guardian is just less than yeah and in <laughs> right. divers you're part of a unit well in hell divers your character will die like you can die yeah. <laughs> 20 times in a match <laughs> it's like there's yeah there's no single character that you play as in hell divers because yeah. you you die you get replaced by a clone or something like <laughs> Every time that yeah. you go back to your ship, it shows this like little animation of them just pulling another copy of you out of cryosleep, <laughs> essentially. And then you can yeah. just see in the background from where you're coming out that there are hundreds of those pods. And I think that them playing it so fast and loose with character deaths is actually a really cool mechanic as well. Like, I really like the fact that every mission does have a very high number of lives allotted to your team. Like, Generally speaking, it's 20 lives in a very short mission. And that feels excessive. But when you think about how quickly you can just completely ruin yourself in this game, I think that's actually really cool because it lets you do dumb and dangerous things without it punishing you too much. Like you can throw around explosives and you can play kind of fast and loose with some of the more, you know, high power weaponry without worrying about oh this is just going to ruin everything for the whole team because as long as one of you is still standing the fight goes on and even when it does ruin something it's real funny <laughs> yeah yeah for sure well it's like if you want to use something that's high powered like a grenade launcher and you're going to use it on an enemy that's like two feet away from you of course your character's going to explode as well <laughs> like yeah there's some level of you need to be smart with your weapons but also the game's like you're free to experiment as much as you like. Yeah, We're not right. going to stand in the way of that, which I just think is a really good attitude to have from a design perspective. Yeah. 
I think another really cool thing about the game is sort of how it splits the items you have at your disposal in half. So you have like your regular shooter equipment loadout. You have an armor set, you have a couple of weapons, you have your grenades, all that kind of stuff. Like that stuff is very tried and true shooter stuff. And then you have sort of the bread and butter of Helldivers, which are your stratagems. So stratagems are not items you take into battle. They are things that you can call in mid-battle to perform one very big attack or to give you better weapons or to resupply your stuff. And you have to sort of find time in the midst of this very chaotic combat to hold a button and press out some combination of, of arrows on the, on the directional pad. And then you throw out a grenade type thing and a couple seconds later the thing you called in drops. And that sounds very complicated, but it's not at all. And it's very, very fun and and rewarding to be able to pull that kind of stuff off well. Because you can do all sorts of stuff. You you call them in, like, fighter game combos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah. There's going to be a new update for Helldivers that's going to add, like, quarter circle inputs. <laughs> <laughs> Oof. I'm not ready for it. <laughs> that was always the dr- That was always the line I couldn't cross in <laughs> Street Fighter. I think it's really smart uh, how you have to input them just on a single hand, so you're still able to like move and shoot while yeah. you're implementing those commands. But yeah, like it still takes a certain amount of your focus to do it. I mean, obviously, while you're trying to do that, you can't aim down the sights or you can't mm-hmm. move like while you're pressing the button to actually do the inputs, but you can be mid-input, like, putting in a command for something, and then you can realize, like, oh, I need to reposition, because if I don't, like, I'm going to die. Or you can just yeah. stop mid-command if you want to, <laughs> to completely drop it and try to focus on something else. It gives you a lot of freedom with how and when you want to use those stratagems. And I think it kind of incentivizes right. players to do risky moves, because sometimes, like, taking out an objective even if it's like inconvenient for you personally can be really helpful for your team as a whole, especially when it's combined with the fact that you can just get revived almost instantly. Yeah, exactly. Like sometimes it is worth it to go in guns blazing and throw down an airstrike and, you know, hopefully get away. But even if not, let yourself get blown up. Like if it means you're going to take down an objective or take out a huge number of enemies, that's probably worth it in a lot of cases. And I really, really like this game just lets you go to those extremes. I feel like a worse game would be a lot more punishing Mm -hmm. with extra lives and things like that. And I think that this game being so generous with those kind of things is why so much of it works as well as it does. Well, they have to be generous with how like chaotic they want things to be. And like you never really know exactly how using a stratagem is going to play out because some of them Mm -hmm. are kind of random about where it's going to actually hit. Like there are some, like you can right. call down a Gatling barrage from orbit. <laughs> so like, yeah, it's going to be a bunch of bullets that are all, or I guess a bunch of like huge shells that, <laughs> that are all going <laughs> to be like around where you placed your, uh, your stratagem grenade, whatever. I don't know. Beacon, <laughs> I guess is the right word. Yeah. That's probably the right word, but you don't know like exactly where anyone is, any one of them are going to hit. And then like explosions are, I guess really chaotic. They have a lot of drop off on their damage. So like if you are close to the explosion, it's 
gonna instantly kill you but then there is like this certain range that you can get to where if you're like right inside of that range it's going to kill you and blow you away and then if you're right outside that range it'll just be completely fine and that's led (laughs) to like funny moments where you know jordan and i will be playing and he'll throw down some kind of orbital strike and we'll be standing like five feet apart from each other in the game but for some reason my character will get exploded and just like fly (laughs) through the air dead (laughs) yeah and he'll be completely fine yesterday me and jordan were streaming helldivers and jordan called down the the gatling barrage like right where i was not on purpose but i just did happen to be there uh and i just dodged and weave just bullets coming out of the sky and somehow did not get hit and it was incredible <laughs> yeah but then like later on in the stream we were just we were like kind of shoulder to shoulder like shooting lots of bugs and another player dropped in like a mortar thing <laughs> and even though we were it looked like a hundred feet away from where it landed the two of us still just got immediately like decimated <laughs> by it like it felt like there was no way it was close enough to it to destroy us but it still did. And I think in a lot of games, that would be absolutely infuriating. But I think we both were just like like dying laughing for the next minute or so. So we were completely unfazed. Something so. else that I've seen that's really funny is that um, sometimes you can throw a stratagem and it'll get stuck on either an enemy or like a teammate. Uh, so then they're yeah. just moving around with it. So sometimes you can just have a bug swarm coming up to you, leading a missile barrage right to you. <laughs> or a teammate's yeah. just doomed Good to their stuff. death because they have a Gatling barrage that's going to fall on them. So we talked a little bit about how this is this is a live service game. Um, I would say it's it's a little bit lighter on the live service stuff than a lot of other games we've talked about sort of in this category. It Its progression system does sort of resemble a battle pass that you would see in like a Fortnite or, you know, an Apex or whatever, but it's it's a little bit different. So every time you complete missions or side objectives within missions, you get medals that you can then spend on armor or guns or cosmetics of, of different kinds. And you do buy those in battle passes. However, you're given one free battle pass with just a ton of stuff in it, like several armor sets, like 10 or 12 guns, a handful of grenades, like all sorts of different stuff. And then there is a premium battle pass you can buy on top of that, which has like two more armor sets and like five more guns or something like that. I would say as far as live service stuff goes, this is one of the more generous games with its free components. Mm -hmm. However, there's still going to be people that are kind of rubbed the wrong way by that because this is still a paid game. I mean, you do pay $40 to pay $10 more to get the the premium battle pass on top of that. It's not as make or break with uh, some other games, in my opinion, but it is still it is still a battle pass and it is still charging you for it. Well, I mean, I think it's really important to note that it doesn't necessarily charge you for it because you can earn the premium currency just by playing the game. Yeah, like, and I mean, like, I've seen people talking about online, like, they'll do missions. I, I guess, like, higher difficulties, you get more of the premium currency and stuff like that. But I saw right. somebody posted a clip earlier where they found, like, $60 worth of premium currency. And it's like, okay, well, that's yeah. three battle passes. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. I just found some for the first time yesterday, and I didn't really see how much it was. But I knew, like, ahead of time, the free battle pass gets you about 750 so like even at that point, you would just have to pay five bucks to be able to unlock the paid one. But if you can find right. points in game, you could just get it for free, which Yeah. Yeah. And every mission generally has at least a few of the uh premium currency that you can find. 
It just requires spending time to look around for it. Yeah. Right. And like, you know, it costs like a thousand to get the premium battle pass. And I think I found like a hundred maybe in missions. And then I've gotten like 300 more from the free battle pass, which I mean, I guess once you finish the free battle pass, you know, there's no way to continue getting credits from that one for like future seasons. But at least in terms of getting the free one and the premium one, you know, it's it's certainly not impossible to do just in game by playing. And I guess I guess let's talk a little bit about that progression system more holistically. So you do have other things besides just the weapons and armor and stuff. Um, you can unlock the wow, I'm blanking on what they're called. The things you drop in from the sky we Stratagem, were just talking stratagems. about. Stratagems, yeah. <laughs> you unlock the stratagems by one leveling up and then two spending the the not premium currency <laughs> to buy them. And I would say that by and large, it's it's pretty quick to unlock stuff. I mean, it takes a handful of matches to get enough of the currency to buy one item. But when you consider how many times you're going to use each individual stratagem, I would say that's still like a, a pretty fair rate. I mean, like I'm level seven or eight at this point, and I've already bought, I don't know, like 10 of them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it goes a long way. And I think that that progression system for me is sort of the thing that I could see bringing me back to the game for longer stretches. Like, I really, really love the minute-to-minute gameplay, but I also think it's complemented really well by sort of the carrot on the stick, (laughs) where it's like, oh, if I do four more matches, that'll give me enough medals to buy this gun, and that'll give me, you know, enough currency to buy this stratagem. And those expansions to your kit feel very, very useful in this game. Which I think is one of the reasons this is doing so much better than a lot of recent live service games, because, like, Live service games should really be built around, even if it's not for the best, dangling that carrot in front of your head so you will chase something in the game to play it more. And even the biggest ones like Destiny aren't really doing that for a lot of people. And like Suicide Squad just came out and I I don't know if they know what a carrot is, but Helldivers does a really great job of like actually wanting, trying to get you to play the game and not even just because it wants you to spend money on it, just because like the devs are clearly passionate about this game. And actually want people to play. <laughs> well, I think it's notable that the only things you can buy with the premium currency are armor sets and the premium pass. Whereas, like, when you're playing through the game and you're unlocking those war bonds for the regular battle pass, and you still have to play through the game and actually unlock the war bonds so you can get further in the premium battle pass. And, you know, you still only have a certain amount of time to get through them and stuff like that. But it has more than just cosmetics in it. Like, there are armor sets, and there are things like emblems for your character and titles, stuff like that. But you'll also find new, unique weapons through it. Like, the regular Battle Pass right now, it has uh, a shotgun that you can get on, like, the first or second page. And it costs a few war bonds, but it's only, like, 14, and you'll go through some matches of this game where you'll come out with, like, 30 of them from just a single match if you actually, like, go through and do the optional objectives. So... It's not too hard to make progress in that pass. And there are, I mean, like I said, there was that shotgun. There's also like a machine pistol that has armor piercing rounds. So I think the game really expects you to spend a lot of time with the bugs in the beginning. But I mean, as soon as you get that machine pistol and you want to go fight the robots, like first off, fighting the robots is an entirely different experience than fighting the bugs. And I'm really hoping that in the future, they'll add like additional factions for you to fight that are 
hopefully just as unique as the two that are already in the game. Yeah. But like once you get that machine pistol, you can start mowing down the robots left and right because armor piercing is really important because all the robots are made of metal. So of course you need armor piercing rounds to fight them. Whereas the bugs will just go down with regular bullets. And like, you're still able to do everything in the game from the beginning, but making progress in that battle pass, getting those newer weapons and armor sets that actually have perks to them makes a pretty big difference in how prepared you are to actually do stuff. Yeah. Now, I think that what you were saying before kind of leads into my one real criticism of the game so far. And I think this is something that will get better with time. But right now, there are only two enemy factions, the bugs and the robots. And there's only like three mission types. Um, Sometimes you do different combinations of objectives, which I think spices it up a little bit. But by and large, it is destroy a facility, destroy eggs, which are basically the same mission. And then there's save people <laughs> uh which is just like press a button and then keep people alive until they can get to a point and then there's like take down a priority target yeah. right and that's kind of it and like those are still fun and i mean i have not gotten bored with them necessarily as much as it's just i would like to see other things <laughs> and i don't know what that would look like and i don't know that they can make it too complicated without it sort of going directly in the face of what the game is mm-hmm. but i would like to see them shake it up a little bit yeah more. i mean i would say with the exception of the escort missions all the mission types in the game really lean into what it's good at like i i know that it can yeah. be a little samey and get boring with some of the mission objectives but i mean at the same time the mission objectives are almost always shoot your guns or blow stuff up and that <laughs> that's the game's bread and butter right there yeah yeah which i think is the reason the escort missions kind of falter because like you can't call down tons of explosives or anything because you're stuck in this like relatively small area where there are people that you cannot get hurt. Well, it's kind of funny because I feel like the game definitely expects you to do more of a quantity over quality situation there. Like there are four or five different points on all of those maps where you can call in, you know, more civilians to run through. I don't think the game really incentivizes you that much to actually protect them. You lose out on requisition marks, which are the things that you use to buy stratagems. But I would say that's probably the least valuable thing that you're obtaining in any given mission. And I think that it's a lot faster, a lot more fun, and just generally more enjoyable (laughs) when you are just running from point to point, hitting the button to summon the uh, civilians and then just being like, well, have fun. (laughs) Hope you guys make it. And then every time it pops up and it's like, you just lost 50 requisition marks. I'm like, all right. Whoop-dee-doo. That's better than time. Womp, womp. Yeah, I just, for all the issues I have with the game, like performance-wise and like the weird, not even performance-wise, but just the weird server bugs and where I'm starting to kind of show its edges for the, you know, the lack of varied content, I still think that just the minute-to-minute is so good. Yeah. And I think this is a game that's going to kind of stay in our rotation for for a while. Yeah. You know, at least every couple of weeks we'll, you know, pick it up and play a couple rounds. And I think it's a really good game for that, even once people kind of get through the, the binge craze that a lot of people are on right now of playing like multiple hours every day. <laughs> and this is really anecdotal, of course. I've seen a lot more people say that they are than the opposite, but I personally have not run into any server issues. I I did, but I think it's because I was playing it a good bit more near like the launch of the game, 
than you guys, but I did end up like when the servers were having really bad capacity issues, I did end up taking like a fair bit of a break from the game uh, until those worked again. And ever since they like fixed the servers to have more uh, player counts for them, uh, it has ran a lot better. And I have not had, I've not had any issues getting into the game and I've only had like two matchmaking errors. Thankfully, the, the last couple of times I've played, even when I've had issues where I can't connect, I've still had people I was playing with that were already in and you know like one of you two were able to invite me and then I got in even though it was at capacity when I tried to you know launch solo so I don't know if that's just a bug or if it's like it's just easier to you know you take priority if you're joining a player that's already in versus trying to get in by yourself yeah so. I mean I would say just my biggest piece of advice based on my experience is uh if you want to have a smooth and simple you know just experience connecting to the servers and getting into a match easily. Uh, just try being me. Just try having <laughs> been born me. And then, like I said, yeah. no issues. Yeah. Uh, I will say something <laughs> that helped with me uh, at like the big peaks of the server issues was turning crossplay off. Um, <laughs> that, that helped. Weird. I think it's because it was only pulling from the PlayStation pool, which like it's on the same server. So I don't understand how any of that works, but it helped somehow. <laughs> probably just a coincidence if i'm honest yeah <laughs> you know maybe if more people want to try it i mean there there were a lot of i mean the reason i found out about it is because i was looking up like issues about the server and a lot of a lot of places were saying that like turning crossplay off helped a fair bit i don't again i don't understand how that works since the playstation and steam versions use the same server since it's crossplay but i don't know i don't know how game dev works you know, one thing I will say I really like is just the fact that you don't have to worry about, like, your entire team getting wiped out. It'll just automatically redeploy everyone if that happens, which yeah. lowers the stakes on some levels, but also, like, there's definitely been times where I've been very thankful that was the case, because it would <laughs> suck to spend, like, 30 minutes doing a mission and then dying, and it's just like, okay, well, you lost everything. Yeah, yesterday yeah. when me and Jordan were streaming... Uh, we were right about to get into the the carrier to leave the planet, and Jordan's game crashed. Classic. Good stuff. That might have been my internet. I can't say for sure that that was the game. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, it's always the possibility for me that it's just my internet. So I've been seeing some things about performance issues. Have any of you guys run into that? I've had a, like the first time or two I played the game, I had some weird visual stuff going on. But nothing, you know, nothing game breaking by any means. And I mean, that's it's gotten better the the further we've gotten from launch. I, I've had the usual like cape clips into something, and then when your body moves, the cape like becomes twenty feet long. But every game has that, so I don't really, I don't have an issue with that. <laughs> Not a single game can figure out capes. Excuse me, Batman Arkham City would like to talk. Although you also hear the horror story about how it was like one guy that did all of the cape physics for uh, <laughs> Arkham Asylum. Thankfully, it was for the one where you'd spend the least time gliding. Well, when you're gliding, you don't really need to worry about the cape physics as much. Because when, when you start gliding, your cape gets replaced with the rigid one, right? That's fair. It's when you're right. moving around and you're... I think the cape in Batman Arkham Asylum is slightly longer. Like it drags on the ground while you're walking. Now that's how you make a Batman cape. But we're not here to talk about Batman. <laughs> well, in that case, do we want to get to final thoughts on Helldivers 2? Yeah. yeah, I'll kick us off. I have had a lot of fun with Helldivers 2. 
uh, I think that just the pure chaos of it all, and a pretty rewarding progression system, and just a, a lot, a lot of fun for a lot of folks. And you know, I don't think it's necessarily a game I'm going to play by myself a lot, but it's something I could see like the three of us coming back to for quite a while. So if you have some friends to play it with, absolutely check this one out. Even if not, maybe read up a little bit. Yeah, I <laughs> so. I think it's very great. It is definitely the best shooter I've played in a long time, like just in terms of its regular mechanics, but all of its like special stuff like stratagems and everything really just add on to it and make it this very unique package that even when it has faults with things like server issues, I still just love how unique the game is. Like I, I don't think I've ever played anything like it. I played one game like it. Eldivers one. one. <laughs> like switching to a third person shooter was probably the best move that they possibly could have made in just making it, you know, more accessible to everyone. I, I was talking to Jordan about it before this. I was like, it doesn't matter how good your twin stick shooter is, you know. People are not as likely to play those as they are to play third person or first person yeah. shooters. Like those games are very clearly the king right now yeah i, I think yeah. twin sticks can be pretty fun but they are not like what everyone wants my big example best twin stick shooter i've played i i love pixel junk shooter ultimate if you've not played pixel junk shooter ultimate give it a shot very fun game rezo gun <laughs> rezo gun's fine <laughs> i don't know i feel like twin stick shooter sort of implies a third dimension of shooting uh, or Resogun is only left and right. Yeah, Resogun's a side scroller. It is a very good game though. If you haven't played it in a while, you should you should dip back in. It's better than you remember. At least that was my experience with it. Also, it's so. made by the same people that made uh, Returnal, which I just think is yeah. really yeah. weird to think about. My thoughts on Hell Divers too, though. Really good game. I'd recommend it. Well, something I've kind of discovered is that there there are different types of gamers out there, and like. My fiance, she's really into, she'll play like a multiplayer game and just start talking to strangers or like send them friend requests afterwards and stuff like that. And I have never been like that. So I don't think I would enjoy this game very much if I was trying to play it, you know, alone. But I would recommend this game to anyone who like either already has a friend group to play it with or is just willing to make friends in the wild. Because I, I think that the co-op and the shenanigans that you can get into while you're playing are probably this game's biggest draw. And I think its longevity is primarily going to depend on, you know, how long different groups of people will keep playing it. Mm, which <laughs> That sounds really weird out of context, I guess. But I mean, like, <laughs> if you can get a friend group that's going to keep playing it regularly for years, then I think this game will continue being fun for years. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean... This game, this is going to be like the third time I've brought up Destiny already. It's not my pulling the plug, thank God. But Destiny's been one of the biggest live service games for years. And Helldivers crossed its Steam concurrent player in like a week of being out. <laughs> I, I think that's really just a testament to like how good of a chance Recency this game has. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's a good sign that like this game does have a good chance of longevity to it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also important to remember that this game is only on two consoles. Right. Whereas yeah. Destiny yeah. was on three. Right. Also, this game has PlayStation money right from the get-go. They didn't get it six years into development or whatever. Well, I mean, Destiny so. did sort of Activision money. <laughs> yeah. I'm really glad that this game did launch with uh, at least PC cross-platform. Mm -hmm. 
I, I think that's a big reason it's done as well as it has. I don't think it would yeah. have ever done as well as it has if it wasn't for that. And I'm very curious if Sony's going to learn from that, uh, which I think is something I'll talk probably a little more in the second half of this episode. Yeah, <laughs> or the for third sure. Half, We're definitely like, going to come the, back. Yeah, the third half. The third, uh, <laughs> the third. The third quarter. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, that's already a lot of hell diving. So let's take it on over to Headline. Before we get into any of the other news, we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about uh, a Nintendo Switch partner showcase that happened last week. Unfortunately, this was not the big Nintendo Direct that revealed the Switch, you know, the the, the next Switch console like we were hoping we would get sometime <laughs> around now. <laughs> but uh, it was still one that a lot of people had high expectations for. And uh, they were not delivered on, in my opinion. <laughs> I think that there was uh, there was one show stealer at this uh, Nintendo Direct for me. <laughs> Epic yeah. Mickey getting a remake. Yeah, that was. Yeah, I was never expecting that to ever happen. Not something that ever crossed my mind. I'm here for it. I will play it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it a lot. I love the original Epic Mickey. I think it was one of the most inventive games on the Switch, and I think it made really, really good... Or, yeah, the Wii. And it made really, really good use of both the peripherals and the, the Disney IPs that it was dipping into. So I, I'm really excited to see that again <laughs> in any capacity. Uh, I guess it's going to be a pretty faithful remake. It showed a lot of, like, one-to-one footage. Yeah. And, I mean, a lot of the environments were the same. It was a lot of the same level layouts. Like, it, it seems like it's going to be a pretty pretty tried and true remake but still one i'm i'm looking forward to I, a lot i didn't realize at first until i saw side by side that it was a remake i thought it was just a remaster at first i, I mean i would say that this game is probably riding the line between remake and remaster yeah yeah that was kind of what i got from it I, I mean it seems like the primary selling point is just improved graphics and the yeah. fact that it's not on a console from 2006. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. I, I'm very excited for it. Uh, looks pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is one, this is like a game that I've been wanting to go back to for a long time. I was going to take the Wii U from, you know, our parents' house forever ago. But, you know, our, our youngest brother, he started using the Wii U to play some of the older stuff a lot. And I felt bad for taking it. And I don't want to go out and like buy a new Wii U or a new Wii. But my my primary reason <laughs> yeah. for wanting it to begin with was Epic Mickey. You said it was Wind Waker. Wind Waker 2, I guess. But <laughs> Epic Mickey's just a game that we've never really had anything else that's quite like it. Yeah. Epic Mickey 2 was bad. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because yeah. that's really like, I don't remember much of either of the games, but I remember Epic Mickey 2 more uh, solely because I remember Oswald being there. Oswald's in both yeah. games. He's just playable. Well, he's a playable character. Yeah. yeah. So that was that was a pretty exciting one, especially for for Jason and I, because we got that long history with the game. Uh, another that we got some some real history with, making a comeback, the Star Wars Battlefront Ooh. games. Not these new first person shooter garbage games. I mean the OG Star Wars Battlefront and Star Wars Battlefront 2. Actually, uh, both the old ones and the new ones are both first and third person. You can change your point of view. Well, Even the yeah. new ones are still primarily third person. 
Either way, we're not talking about that new garbage. We're not talking about that proficient shooter made by a good shooter developer game. We're talking good old-fashioned pre-HD gaming goodness. Yeah. I am interested in this one, not because I think it's going to be that much fun, as much as I I, I want to see how badly it's aged. <laughs> uh, Battlefront 1 specifically. I feel like Battlefront 2 holds up, and I've played it a handful of times in like the past few years and like i haven't played it for long on any given stretch but like i still have fun with it i feel like star wars battlefront one is going to be absolutely impossible to play in 2024 i just want to be able to play galactic conquest again yeah what a cool game mode yeah it's a shame that we don't see game modes like that in anything nowadays yeah like galactic conquest was so good I miss for, it. For anybody that didn't play Galactic Conquest, it's basically, it puts all of the planets in the, in Battlefront on like a galactic map, and then you get to pick from one of two factions, and it's kind of like a board game, and anytime yeah. that you, like anytime you try to take one of your enemy's bases, or you attack their cruiser in space, it goes to like a normal Battlefront match, and as you're playing through the board game portion and winning matches, you'll unlock different currencies that you can use to buy like additional resources or like one-time bonuses, stuff like being able to deploy with a hero whenever you want in a match, or you can buy new troops as you go. Like you start out with only the the default troop, but as you actually you know spend money and win matches, you can unlock crazy stuff like droidicas yeah. or jetpack troopers. Like it's just such a fun game mode. And like, and I, it's the best part of Battlefront 2, in my opinion. And sometimes you'd even have For to sure. do the, the space battles, which were incredible. Looking at them now, it doesn't seem like they've aged that well. Because it's just two ships side by side that like aren't moving. They're pretty easy to get around. There's not much to do with them. But they're still just really fun. Yeah, it was just... I have so many fond memories of Battlefront 2. And I'm, I'm really excited to play that again. Which, I mean, yeah, I do already own it on <laughs> Xbox and could hypothetically play it anytime. Yeah. But uh, I will say, if you're worried that... I, I know Battlefront 1, I never really played that because I think we only had it for the PS2. And I played it, like, twice. Uh, because 2 was better. Um, but yeah. Battlefront 2 has surprisingly aged fairly well. I, I got really into it, like, after... No, not after COVID, right when COVID started in 2020. And like, I thought it still held up pretty well. So two more rapid fire games I want to talk about, because they were games I was really excited about. And I feel like I've done pulling the plugs on at least one of these two. Uh, So Ender Lilies is getting a sequel in Ender Magnolia. Um, Ender Ender Lilies is a game you probably haven't even heard about, but it's a uh, side scrolling Metroidvania that released probably two or three years ago now. Um, with a really, really cool hook, which is you don't have basic attacks in the game. Your character is, she is like a little girl who is sort of defenseless in a very dangerous world. And all of your attacks are summons. So like a sword strike isn't you swing a sword. It's like you summon in a guy who runs in and swings his sword. (laughs) And, you know, you summon in a, a wizard to cast a spell, or you can even like, the monsters you fight, you can get as summons that become your special abilities. And it has a very, very cool visual style and a really cool hook with that. So check that one out. You can probably get it for a little bit of nothing because it is an indie game that's been out for a couple of years. And the other one, Unicorn Overlord. I know it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
uh, Fantasy Life, The Girl Who Steals Time, uh, a sequel to Fantasy Life, which was a 3DS game that released in like 2013 or something like that. Uh, That was a confusingly good game. (laughs) Um, It's a top-down kind of hack-and-slash dungeon-crawler-y thing, but that's only half the game. The other half is you pick one of several jobs that you use to sort of either fund the equipment you need for your for your journey or you become like a blacksmith and straight up build it or something like that. Um, it had a really, really cool system where every job had like mini games, I guess you could say, that you did to create the materials or create whatever it is you're selling or whatever. Um, and it had a lot of really cool systems in terms of how that stuff integrated into the dungeon crawler part of the game. So I'm I'm really excited to see how this plays out as a as a modern game. I think the first one was really good, but when I tried going back three or four years, there was just some mechanical stuff that didn't feel the best, you know, this far removed. So I'm excited for that one. Uh, those are games that are probably only on my radar, <laughs> uh, not necessarily ones that are gonna, uh, you know, resonate with my co-host here. But you should check out the originals if you're not, even if you're not necessarily gonna check out the new ones. Now me, I'm excited for World of Goo too. <laughs> I played a lot of World of Goo back in the day. Yeah. I think it's fun. I don't have much to say about World of Goo. I just think it's fun and it's kind of cute. I like the art style. I didn't expect a sequel. Yeah. Like I I was under the impression there had already been like multiple of these games. Like I was thinking there had been multiple sequels and maybe some like expansions and stuff like that, but no. There was just the original World of Goo and then nothing for like 12 years or whatever and now we're getting world of goo 2 the original is on the wii and it came out in like 2008 yeah. it, it got a remake on switch or a remaster uh, a couple of years Uh-oh. ago I think. but mm-hmm. basically nothing other than that i was really surprised when the remaster got announced i guess i should have been able to see when that happened that there was probably going to be a sequel because mm-hmm. you don't normally remake not entirely super popular puzzle games you know nearly 15 years later but <laughs> yeah you just take yeah. what you can get when you're a world of goo fan i never played world of goo <laughs> but i don't remember the name of it but the the one game they had uh, about fire <laughs> i did play that one on the wii u thought it was pretty good oh yeah the one where you had to like burn stuff for money yeah. oh little and Inferno. you could burn like yeah I, yeah, I knew it was little yeah, something. yeah i was thinking like little match at yeah. first <laughs> yep little remember match. that game got like weirdly like <laughs> um, deep but i was yeah. also like tin so i was like let me burn stuff yeah i liked it because it had the the puzzle elements to it you need to burn different combinations of items to get different items and money and stuff like that it was a really cool idea jackson did you have anything that we didn't talk about that you were excited for from the uh the partner showcase no it it was just epic mickey and battlefront (laughs) another crab's treasure is another is a game that i do want to mention it's it's oh, like yeah, a souls like or something fun. where you play as a, a hermit <laughs> crab whose shell gets stolen and then you can yeah. pick up different items from the environment to use as a temporary shell and they all have like different abilities very cool idea for a game i'm pretty excited for that yeah one. also a really fun visual style like i think the game just looks really cool it's not one i'm confident i'm gonna play but it's one i will be keeping an eye on for sure And now for the final game that they announced at the Nintendo Partner Direct Showcase. We're going to give you all the same excitement and energy that they did when they announced that they're making a new Endless Ocean. Anyways, moving on. Yep. (laughs) That was the big end of the Direct reveal. 
a new endless ocean which hey maybe there's a huge following for that game i'm just i've just never met anyone that's a part of it so uh let's move on to our next headline so we've talked a lot in the past about marvel movies and you know we got even more marvel stuff we're going to get into today but first i want to talk about the new cinematic universe that's coming for the crown the bcu the Beatles Cinematic Universe. <laughs> uh, so Sam Mendes, the director, has uh, revealed that he is going to be directing four different biopics, biopics, however you want to say it. Uh, each, uh, each one will be about a different member of the Beatles, and they're all set to release in one year. There's going to be you know connected plot lines and sort of a, a thread that carries between the movies. And... Uh, this is one that part of me is like, this is going to rule. And part of me is like, this is going to suck. But in a way, I'm still very excited for. <laughs> okay, I have two possible options that I want to do for how we see this movie. One, we all go to all of them. Two, <laughs> we, we split like into four, you, you know, the three of us and Abby. And we each yeah. only go see one of them. <laughs> I want to see yeah. Ringo's. All right, I'll go see... Uh, Paul McCartney's Gordon. You get John Lennon, uh, solely because at one point I remember you had a book about him, and at that point I still didn't know what the difference between Elton John and John Lennon was because I was six. Uh, the same guy. Um, John yeah. Lennon's movie is a horror movie from the other Beatles' <laughs> perspectives. <laughs> John Lennon's movie—they uh, just give you drugs before you go watch it. I just I don't know how this could possibly look. Because I'm expecting that it's going to be like a kind of a, a, a puff piece kind of thing like they did with uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, where it's like, it was a competent movie. And like, it did highlight like the band's music and stuff. But it also told like a very boring, watered down version of Freddie Mercury's story. And I just kind of feel like this is going to happen Remember again. Remember how in the movie they didn't want to say he was a drug addict, so they made him a party addict? <laughs> Well, that's Ugh. just every movie. Good stuff. Yeah. No, but I mean, the, like, the thing they're going to do in this one is we're going to get the John Lennon movie, and the most that's going to happen is, like, he's going to accidentally step on his wife's foot. Yeah, this this one's going to be uh, uh different. I do think that Sam Mendes is a good director, and I think that he has the potential to do this better than most. Um, that being said, I'm not sure that his filmography is necessarily one that would, it's not one that would make me think, yeah, this is a guy that's going to make four very good movies about the Beatles. <laughs> now, more importantly, um, who are Tom Holland and Chris Pratt going to play? Now that, that is one that, uh, I think we should just start going ahead and, you know, throwing out guesses for, um. I'm I'm thinking uh, Chris Pratt is going to be the voice of the inner monologue of all four of them. <laughs> oh, sorry. This is about a completely different movie, but did you guys see that new, uh, it's the Bill Skarsgård movie that oh, they announced? Where H. John Benjamin voices his inner voice. Yeah. The voice of Bob from Bob's Burgers. I want to see that. I'm very excited for that. Yeah. That looks really cool. But anyways, Mark Wahlberg will play John Lennon. He's going to do the worst British accent you've ever seen. He's just going to do his normal accent, but every once in a while he'll say in it. He'll somehow be more Boston. He's going to he's going to really play up how it's going to be 
this incredible voice that no one's going to see coming, even though it's just going to be his voice again, just like it was every other time he has done something similar. But naturally, to answer your question from earlier, Tom Holland as Paul McCartney, because he's the most popular, and uh, Chris Pratt as Ringo, because he has the funniest voice and Chris Pratt is going to do nothing with it. (laughs) So this last week, the Sora... Super Smash Brothers Ultimate Amiibo has shipped. And with that, the entire Ami- Amiibo collection is finished, and thus, Super Smash Brothers Ultimate is officially done. Hold up. Didn't there it... is no more Smash Ultimate on the horizon. Didn't Sora get added to the game, like, over two years ago? Yeah, the Amiibos what? have been way behind. <laughs> that's a, that's... I'm kind of sad. I did manage to get a hold of a Sora Amiibo, which I, I was excited for. I tried to collect all the ones for characters that I really cared about, which means that I have uh, Lucas, Solid Snake, and a bunch of other random ones. Mm-hmm. So I did manage to get a hold of a Sora amiibo. I kind of hope that they'll start republishing some of them, because I did not manage to get a hold of a Joker amiibo, and I really want one. Did you get a Steve amiibo? Yeah. No, I don't want a Steve amiibo. <laughs> Uh, I'm happy to do. say that my house has zero Minecraft merch in it, and I intend for it to stay that way. <laughs> yeah. It is interesting, though, that sort of the timeline here. So, Ultimate launched in 2018. Um, they had 11 or 12 DLC characters over the course of three years. Uh, Sora was the final character added in 2021, and we just now got <laughs> Sora's Amiibo. Uh, somehow making this little figurine took them three years. <laughs> it is it is really cool to kind of see like all eighty nine of the figures. Yeah, all eighty nine of the figures are now out. That being said, amiibos are ridiculously expensive and incredibly inaccessible. So getting all eighty nine of them would literally cost like well over a thousand dollars, and it's absolutely insane that Nintendo let it get to that point in terms of like limited availability. Yeah. I mean, there's also the fact that, like, the Sora amiibo is not as good as most of the other amiibo, because the Sora amiibo will never be usable in any other game ever. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like, when you buy a Mario amiibo, there's at least some knowledge that you can have that it'll probably be usable in a couple of Mario games. Assuming that the next, like, Switch follow-up still can scan amiibos. But, (laughs) like... When you buy the Sora amiibo, you're buying it fully and just you 100% know for a fact that there will never be a Kingdom Hearts game on Switch. And if there is, it will not take advantage of the, you know, the amiibo functionality. And I mean, of course, all of the Kingdom Hearts games are technically on Switch, but they're on that stupid cloud service thing. Even Kingdom Hearts 1, for some reason, which came out on the PlayStation 2. Yeah. It is kind of a shame. (laughs) To say goodbye to Smash Ultimate, I guess. That, that, oh, that, for that sure. This is the last thing that's going to come out of Smash Ultimate. At least it's a yeah. good thing. Maybe that I, means they're going to start working on Smash Ultimate 2. I do. That was sort of the main reason I wanted to talk about this article. Is It's not so much that it's like that wild that Smash Ultimate is officially done. As much as like, where do they go from here? I mean, Smash Ultimate's entire gimmick was that all the characters from all the games were present. So, like, what now? Do they just make the next game with a 100-character <laughs> roster? Or do they go back to a smaller roster and, you know... The next game a has bit 16 on... characters, but they are yeah. incredibly customizable. It's like a Tekken game. 
<laughs> yeah. Go back to like uh the the size of the you know roster from like Brawl, but it's half new characters, and they only keep I don't know like only keep like one character per property or something for the next one. Like that's what I want to see happen. I I don't think that's going to happen because people would riot if their favorite character got taken out. All right, my idea for the next roster, Mario, obviously, we drop Yoshi and we replace him with. The dog. I forgot his name. Poochie. That's it. No Sora. No, sorry. Not Sora. Obviously no Sora. No Kingdom Hearts representation. Unless, of course, we manage to get Mickey Mouse. Right. We drop Link, Zelda, and Ganondorf to be replaced with the pigs from Wind Waker. <laughs> Those are the ones we've been waiting for. Okay. Um, uh, Fire Emblem. Only one Fire Emblem character, so of course it has to be leaf i think it's just those uh, the, four actually yeah <laughs> only characters in the game it's like the four most absolutely deranged characters possible uh pokemon trainer is back he now uses uh exclusively diglett <laughs> he uses <laughs> Mimikyu, chandelure and uh aegislash now aegislash i would actually be completely on board for as his own character <laughs> So, I don't know. I'm just, I'm really curious to see what happens next. Because I do think that the next game will be smaller, at least in terms of, like, total roster. At least at first. But I do wonder what the public perception of that is going to be. Because I just feel like there's so much, I don't know, there's so much about Smash Ultimate that is, like, its whole, its entire DNA is, this is the game with everything. So, do you just do everything plus some more? Or do you scale it down? I think for the sustainability of the series, I think it has to be scale it down, but who knows? I hope they bring back something like Subspace Emissary. That would be so nice. I know. I've seen Sakurai talk multiple times about why he hasn't brought something back like that, and I think that his reasons are very dumb. <laughs> Where he, he, he said something along the lines of like, the cutscenes in that are meant to be your reward for getting past the different missions and if people are just going to post those cutscenes online anyways then i don't see any point in making it to begin with and i think that's just an incredibly backwards way to view story modes in video games like i know that yeah, he's been making sure. fighting games for well fighting games in kirby and that one kid icarus game <laughs> <laughs> yeah like i know that that's kind of the big stuff and story's never been a huge focus especially in kirby but you know, I, I'd like to see something like that come back. I mean, I think the biggest appeal of having a crossover game like that is the characters interacting with each other. And it feels like Smash Ultimate and Smash 4, like, it doesn't feel like they necessarily interact with each other as much. Part of that is, like, the characters that do fun things, like Pit and Snake, where they actually, you know, talk about the other characters that you're fighting and stuff like that. It's really weird to me that all the dialogue from that is still just stuff from Smash Brawl. <laughs> I don't even yeah. think new dialogue was recorded when they added like the uh, the DLC characters in Smash 4 or in Smash Ultimate. Like, I don't know. It feels on some level like the appeal of the crossover has kind of been lost in making a good fighting game. And like Smash Brothers, I don't know if I would call it a good fighting game because I'm not well-versed enough in fighting games to make that call but it is a very fun game oh for sure for sure i mean i think it's by far the the most fun just like pick up and play multiplayer fighting game 
I mean, I don't know that there's many that do it better just in terms of how quickly you can get into the action and have a good time like at any skill level. Yeah, I just feel kind of like presentation has been lost since Brawl. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Or if it hasn't been lost, it's at least stagnated, I guess. Well, that's already a lot of Smash Brothers talk. Uh, we got one more thing we got to dig into, the hard-hitting news. The stuff that's really setting the gaming world on fire. Um, and that is uh, Limp Biscuit. <laughs> After seven years... Someone has finally obtained a copy and posted it online of the Limp Biscuit mod for Fallout New Vegas. It's just a mod, it's fully voice acted, and it adds your boy Fred Durst from Limp Biscuit to the game as a companion. It's not really that big of a deal. The mod was deleted from Fallout's, uh, like, the, yeah, the Fallout mod nexus, so there was no way to download it offline. The original creator of the mod had, like, deleted everything off of his computer <laughs> after posting it so he didn't have a copy anymore but somebody seven years after all this happened managed to find that they had a copy of the mod installed on their computer and they posted it online for all to see so I just thank you usagi cola for yeah. managing to find your copy of the fred durst mod <laughs> I mean, I don't know enough about mods to really comment on this, I guess. But there's a part of me that's just like, how do the people that have the capacity to do this also have the will to do this? I don't mean like this. I don't mean this specifically. I mean like the initial creation of this mod. Like, I don't think this would be a very I don't know. hard mod to make. You just... <laughs> like, there are already companions in the game. You can copy and use a lot of that code. It's literally just going through and putting the voice lines in. Like, I, this was lost media for a while, but if somebody wanted to just recreate it, <laughs> I don't think it would have been very difficult. It's more just the novelty of it all. <laughs> Seeing something yeah. like this disappear for so long and then just pop back up in the wild, like, you never expect that kind of thing to happen. But I'm glad it did. My next playthrough, I'm going to... He's going to be my uh, the only companion I use. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's all of our headlines. So now we got to talk about what in the world is going on with these new generation of consoles. And specifically, what has been up with Xbox lately? We're going to talk a little bit about the consoles as a whole. Uh, not so much our opinions as much as this staggering distance in sales between Xbox and PlayStation. Now, the numbers for this console generation aren't super clear, uh, and these may not be accurate, but this is definitely the, the biggest divide we've seen between the two consoles in any generation thus far. So it's expected that the Xbox Series S and X together have sold about 22.5 million units, whereas the PS5 has sold around 50 million units, which is a staggering difference between two you know, console manufacturers that have been historically pretty neck and neck, um, at least by the end of any respective console generation. So I, I think before we get into like the specifics and what Xbox is doing to, to reconcile this, what do you all think, like, the big reason for that is? Do you all think there's, like, one major underlying issue 
because part of me wants to say it's just the games, but I don't even know if that could really account for this big of a difference. Yeah, I mean, I gotta say the biggest thing is that uh, Xbox has no games. <laughs> yeah, it, it's that coupled with the fact that Xbox has really been pushing that you don't need an Xbox to play Xbox games. That Game Pass, you know, <laughs> it's on your computer, it's on your phone. Um, I think a lot of sort of smart TVs have access to Xbox Cloud Play now. So, like, they've really been pushing this generation, like, you don't need an Xbox to play Xbox games. So, like, yeah, I yeah. think they've... That's gotta be a big factor in all this. Yeah. It's just, why would you buy an Xbox versus a PlayStation when every Xbox game you could possibly imagine that you're gonna want is gonna be on Xbox Cloud Streaming? Right. Like, look at all of the big Xbox exclusives. Forza Horizon 5, it's on Cloud Streaming. Starfield, it's on Cloud Streaming. Halo like, Infinite. <laughs> Like, it's all just available to play on my phone if I'm paying for Game Pass or my PC. Like, there's no reason to have an Xbox Series X. I, I don't use it unless you know there are cross console games that I'll get on there yeah. sometimes. But even your Steam Deck, you can do. Um, I don't think cloud streaming. You probably could set that up. I'm not sure, but like you can just stream from you your can. console. Yeah, I almost every single time that I play an Xbox game, it's on my Steam Deck through cloud streaming or yeah. via console streaming. Which, like, I don't think that's a bad thing. Like, I think that's a very good thing. I think being able to play your games from your console anywhere is very good. Like, I want to see more of that. I wish PlayStation would do something like that, but the only thing they've came close to is, like, a few PC releases that are on Steam, so, like, you don't have progress transfer like you do because Xbox uses their own... I can't think of the word. They use their own program. Um, so like any progress you have on anything on your Xbox is also on your PC or your phone or anywhere, but like PlayStation, all their first party games they put on PC, just the steam and their only attempts at like being able to take your games anywhere is the PlayStation portal, which sucks because you have to have it connected to your PlayStation for it to work. PlayStation portal is very, we've talked about it before. It still just really gets on my nerves with like how weirdly positive people were about it. I don't want to say that anyone's getting paid off, but it was really hard for me to look at PlayStation portal discourse and not be like, people are getting paid off because it just did everything that I can already do on my smartphone. And it only had Wi-Fi five in it. So if you have like, if you have something new with a Wi-Fi six chip in it, it's going to play those games better than the PlayStation Portal. Right. The only thing the PlayStation Portal has over any other remote play device for PlayStation is just the fact that they made it easier to do. Yeah, and it's got DualSense functionality. <laughs> if you do it on your phone, then it's going to forget about like your device and it's going to make you like re-authenticate and stuff mm -hmm. like that every once in a while. And literally all the PlayStation Portal does is make it so you don't have to do that. <laughs> right but you can already play remote play on your phone with a ps5 controller yeah. if you wanted to and like since it's through streaming like as long as you have a good connection it's fine <laughs> i'm not saying it's necessarily a terrible device i'm just saying it was weird seeing people talk about it like it was incredible when it is bringing literally nothing new to the table i, I think the issue <laughs> right. is like no one wanted just a handheld streaming device like that when what people wanted is something similar to like game pass cloud play and it's also hard to look at the company that made the playstation portal 
and then immediately have to be like, anyway, they're winning. Well, I think to kind of recenter this on Xbox, though, the big thing for me, the, the most confusing point of all of this, they wanted to invest all this money and time and infrastructure into their version of the cloud system. And they did it without proprietary hardware, and they did it where it was accessible basically anywhere with any device. Like, that's awesome. But then when it hurts their Xbox sales, it makes me wonder, like, specifically it specifically when they indicate they are hurting from the lower Xbox sales, it kind of makes me ask, like, what, what was their goal? Yeah. Like, like, <laughs> what did you want to happen? <laughs> I, I mean, the only thing I can think is they were hoping that the core Xbox users, the same people that have bought an Xbox every generation, were still going to buy an Xbox. And that the these people that were going to be accessing it to the cloud system were people that didn't historically play Xbox. Like they were hoping people that exclusively bought PlayStation systems might use the cloud system to play Halo with a friend or whatever. And what ended up happening is people that have historically bought exclusively Xboxes are not buying Xboxes and just playing on PC or streaming it or whatever. And I don't know how they could have that big of a blunder on public perception. Like, I don't know how they could have missed the mark by that much on on the outcome of this thing they set up themselves. I think that it's got to be that they're just, like, very one-track minded, right? Like, right. Xbox as a company, when they were pushing their cloud stuff, and the people that were, you know, on high were just like, you need to make sure that everyone's using our Xbox cloud stuff. It doesn't matter if they're buying an Xbox or whatever. It needs to be you need to be able to play those cloud games wherever you are. You need to, everyone in the world needs to be subscribed to Xbox game pass. Nothing else matters. Just focus on those things. And then they focused on those things for a year. And then it's like, Oh, well now we want everyone to be playing on an Xbox. And it's like, well, <laughs> about that. We already told everyone they don't need an Xbox because they can play Xbox games without one. So now we're going to have to convince people that they they actually do need an Xbox again. And it's like, that's hard to do mid-console generation. Yeah. You've, you've spent the first half of the Xbox Series X and Series S's life cycle telling everyone that these consoles are really good, but you don't necessarily need one if you want to play Xbox games. And now they're trying to come in on the back half of that same console and be like, actually, you do need one. We don't have anything on it that's special right now, <laughs> but you need one. And now no one's buying one still, and no one is going to be particularly interested in buying one because why would they? Yeah, it's just, it's a very weird spot right now. I mean, we've talked in the past about how bad console exclusives can be. Right. But also, like, they're very important for your console's longevity right and they also they drive like the competition of them drives you know innovation innovation which on one hand i think like you know everyone should have access to the same games no matter what platform they play on but at the same time i want to see that innovation because some of the most innovative games tend to be the first party games i i think that's started to change a lot recently but I still think for a good bit that does hold true. I think Sony's definitely starting to slip on that because a lot of Sony's big hits now are like, I don't, I don't want to call anything a walking simulator, but you know, you've got your uh, Last of Us's and God of War's where like 
there is a good bit of just climb around or get through stuff to get to the next combat encounter. But those games still have like incredible stories and voice acting with them and very good gameplay. I mean, I think there's something to be said for the priorities of their first party games as well. Mm -hmm. PlayStation has more of a focus on storytelling in their exclusives, whereas Xbox exclusives, I feel like have a bigger focus on gameplay, right? right? And multiplayer. You have stuff like Hi-Fi Rush, you have Halo Infinite, you have Forza Horizon. Forza. Like these are all very gameplay focused games. Mm I mean, yeah. people. And they're still great games. Yeah, they're good games, but, but like there is just a little bit of a difference in the focus between their first party games. Right. And I think on some level, people right now are more interested in story games for the most part. Yeah, like personally, like I'm I'm very interested in story games. Like that's that's the type of stuff I like more than anything. But like I still want to see like Sony to do really good innovative gameplay stuff that I don't think they are doing as much as Microsoft are. Cause like, I, I, I can't think of any game that Sony's had. That's anything similar to hi-fi rush or Pentiment to the point where even both of those are now releasing on other consoles. Xbox's first party games have been either lower key releases or in some cases like flops, like, yeah, like Starfield right. is not, was not a successful game, no matter how you want to look at it. I mean, I think it sold well to begin with, but from what I recall and like looking at everything, like those sales really tapered off and public perception of the game is, is very negative generally. And like they have successes under their belt. I mean, hi-fi rush is, it was huge and everyone was talking about it and everyone loved it. Gameplay and art style. Otherwise, you know, like it had a lot going for it and now it's not even going to be an Xbox exclusive anymore. So, (laughs) right. Yeah, which that's the next thing I want to talk about. So the way that Xbox is sort of trying to reconcile uh, the these pretty rough sales is by expanding their games that were previously console exclusives out to other consoles. Uh, we recently learned that uh, four games, Hi-Fi Rush, Pentiment, Sea of Thieves, and Grounded, are going to be coming to, I think all four of them are going to be coming to Switch and PlayStation, but all four are definitely coming to Switch. And I think that those are four games that I think were the right choice because those are games that I think are going to have broader appeal. Like, they're going to be good with younger audiences, like for like a lot of Switch users, like not Pentiment, obviously, but the others. And like, those are like... uh sea of thieves has a really big online presence so like the more people you have playing the better across the board but at the same time i do think it's sort of indicative of a a major shift that's about to happen and unfortunately i think it's a shift that is coming exclusively because of microsoft's failures not because it's the right thing for the industry Mm -hmm. i think it is the right thing for the industry in a way like i just across the board the more games that are on the more consoles, the better The better everyone is for it. But I am a little bit nervous about sort of a Sony monopoly that could come out of this. <laughs> Which is very interesting because it's very much seemed like Xbox is going to be the one with any sort of monopoly with how many huge developers they've been absorbing. Like, I mean, they just got Activision Blizzard. They have Bethesda too, like, which is just insane to me that those are not independent studios anymore. It doesn't necessarily matter how many studios you pull under your umbrella. And I think that Embracer Group is a really good example of a company that is doing similar things. It is 
acquiring a lot of these primarily smaller developers. I mean, Xbox has deeper pockets and they've been able to acquire Activision Blizzard, which is insane. But it doesn't necessarily matter who you have if you're not delivering, right? (laughs) I mean, Embracer Group has literally everything going for it. They have some of the best developers in the world, some of the best development studios in the world, and they are an extremely successful publisher. And yet they're losing money hand over fist because they have not been able to deliver on their promises. I mean, they put games out every once in a while, but it's not enough to sustain everything that they're trying to build out. And that's the reason why they're having to fire large numbers of people, both, both companies, you know, like they're having to fire so many people to stay afloat and to stay, you know, profitable. And then it doesn't even matter how profitable they are if they're not growing every single year. Like if they can't show that not only are we profitable, we're more profitable than we were last year. These issues will just keep compounding on each other. And I think a lot of developers, a lot of development studios, like they're going to go under, right? (laughs) Like, right. We are on the verge, at least in my eyes of, you know, a kind of major video game crash. And I I don't think it's going to be anything like when the same thing happened in, you know, the 80s with like E.T. and Atari and all that. But I do think that the AAA gaming space, <laughs> the quadruple A gaming space that Ubisoft is trying to create, like, I think that that is going to look very different in, you know, maybe half a decade because it's just not sustainable. Right. I mean, a, a game taking six years and costing $250 million just isn't. That's not something that can continue on forever. Especially not when it's a game that took over a decade to develop and doesn't even have the same number of features. And I mean, this is separate because I'm I'm talking about uh, Skull and Bone. But like that game was supposed to be a follow up to Assassin's Creed 4. And literally everything you see about it is comparing it to Assassin's Creed 4 negatively after a decade and hundreds of millions of dollars being spent on this game it's just not sustainable and i don't think that xbox is immune to that just because they're a bigger company right i don't think playstation is immune to it either i think like this is going to be something that affects all of them playstation has just been playstation's lucky that their games have been a lot more favorably reviewed this whole time yeah because right. if PlayStation was putting out games that were as modest as the stuff Xbox has released or even flops, like they're a year away from being in this exact situation. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I think that not only is that bad in terms of just the general volatility of it all, but I think it's also going to hinder creativity. These developers aren't going to take big swings because if the game fails, then it's going to be catastrophic. Like, I think there was a point not even that long ago, like 10 years ago, where a game could fail and then the developer would just start the next game. And I don't think we're at that point anymore. I think we're at a point where if a game fails, that studio is very likely to just stop existing very soon. Or even if your game's not failing. I mean, look at Bungie. Oh yeah, right. I mean, there are still plenty of instances where there's major layoffs and closures and getting absorbed by different companies and it's all just... It's all just a mess. (sighs) I really hate how every conversation we have on this podcast just ends up being like, man, games sure are a mess right now. Anyways, bye. It just <laughs> <laughs> I-, I wish the games industry was not the way it is right now, but 
it's in an awfully bleak state right now that I don't know shines every now and then whenever like something really cool is released but between those periods it's just seeing these developers and publishers make terrible decisions that are not good for consumers at all and they're not good for workers either like the fact that last year there was what was it over 10,000 layoffs is what it ended up being I mean it was an astronomical number whatever it was one of the biggest years in gaming and oh the biggest year in gaming i mean and some of the worst layoffs most game releases most sales like it's yeah it was across the board it was a huge year financially but then that financial success unfortunately does not mean the success of the people that make those products which is just something that shouldn't be happening because like if if these games are making this much money and being this successful the team should not be having to lay off this many workers like it it shouldn't be happening (laughs) I mean, this is one of the obvious downsides of these huge, like, mergers, right? Right. Because when you look at Bungie, right, I think they're a really good example of how volatile and dangerous these things can be. Destiny 2 is still doing pretty well, right? Like, it's a game that people still regularly talk about. Mm -hmm. They have other irons in the fire that they're working on. It's about to release its big end-of-storyline event, like, dlc they still laid off a crap ton of people yeah like they have all the advantages of working under sony right now the fact that they have sony money to put into things their sony will assist them in marketing they'll assist them in dis- distribution of the game like there are all of these really big advantages to being owned by a big company like this but the problem is regardless of what is happening at bungie if something big happens to, let's say, you know, to one or two of PlayStation's other development studios, if something big happens there and they're losing a lot of money, it's no longer just those unrelated studios losing money. It's Sony then needs to divert a lot of their assets that should be spread equally amongst all of the development studios towards those studios, or they need to lay people off at those studios. But either way, like, what ends up happening is that the the pipeline where it's supposed to be from PlayStation's perspective, from Sony's perspective, this pipeline where it's supposed to be money going up from those development studios, something bad happens at one of them, and suddenly they need to take more money than those studios are pulling in. Like Sometimes those pipelines get reversed and they need to be putting money into studios. It's so fickle and it can be completely unrelated to what you're doing but it can completely shutter your studio or get you closed down. Like it's just too much. And there's obviously these three major companies are the the biggest ones doing it. Xbox, Sony, and uh, Embracer group. And only one of them is doing well right now. Right. Right. But the tables could turn on them at any given moment. And suddenly, you know, studios that are months away from putting a game out are going to get closed down without being able to release that game. Or thousands of people are going to lose their jobs because the company at the top is getting a little too greedy and trying to take too much from the little guys. And the little guys don't really have enough autonomy to do anything about it. I mean, Bungie's big layoffs were due to, they were worried that if they weren't pulling in enough money, that PlayStation would take control of the company, right? Oh, they weren't worried. That was what I saw. It was 100% what happened. Yeah. (laughs) That that shouldn't be a problem, especially not when your studio is doing relatively well. Harrowing stuff, really. (laughs) Like, 
there's just so much about this that's like not only is it bad i also don't know what's going to happen instead well the good news is some giant uh live service game is going to come out in a week and fix everything because that's what they think is going to happen <laughs> yep that's going to make them all the money they need to be back on track and suddenly be the most successful company to ever exist it worked for Epic. It's definitely going to work for everyone else every time. Hey, at least Xbox has some big exclusives coming, you know, right along the pipeline that are going to be out very soon, right? This is... Sure. That, that makes me think. This is another kind of, like, small tangent of the generation. But, like, when I look back at the PS4, like, some of the biggest games were brand new IPs. Like, Horizon Zero Dawn is probably the first thing that comes to mind when I think of the PS4. And God of War, which while not a new IP, was pretty different from the originals, and Spider-Man. Like, but the new generations have not had any sort of new IP like that. Like, the biggest game released this generation has been Elden Ring, for sure. Like, even though it was not really my cup of tea, that is by far, I think, the defining game of this generation. While last generation, there was a lot more new first-party IPs that kind of defined the console, while, like, Sure, there's been like God of War Ragnarok or like Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart or Spider-Man 2, but like there hasn't been any brand new IP that's really gave the console an identity. They need a they need a Crash Bandicoot. That's what's going to turn it all around. I mean, what was the big game that was the PlayStation 4's identity? I would say God of War, which is weird on topic because technically not a new IP, but very, very big departure from the original. And then there's also, you know, Horizon Zero Dawn. Again, complete new IP, Spider-Man. Uh, I feel like there's something else that I can't think of right now. I don't. I don't think we're really at a point anymore where a game just ha- or like a, a console just has like that one game that's synonymous with that console. I don't necessarily yeah. think that's really been a thing since like the PS2. It, I, I think it's it's more about your catalog and like the size of it because like the Xbox One had plenty of exclusives. Yeah, like Spellbound. Well, I'm, I'm talking about the one. Yeah, like Spellbound. Okay. You know that game that released? Regardless, though, it, I think it is true that there is not, like... There aren't a lot of games today that... There there aren't as many console sellers, I guess is the best way to put it. I think that it takes more than one game to sell a console. Whereas there was a point in time where there would be people that would go out and buy the console just to play Final Fantasy VII. Or just to play god of war or something i don't know like there are a handful of games that have had that place in the past and i don't think that the ps3 on have necessarily had those kinds of games i think a big part of it is price right i mean oh absolutely the gamecube launched at 200 dollars. the playstation 2 and xbox were 300 and like i know that that was in 2001 money but you know for the price that you could get a ps2 and four games back then like that just gets you the console that's the barrier to entry now right like i think that money is worth a lot less than it used to be worth but at the same time like people's perception of it hasn't changed enough or well more more accurately people aren't earning more enough that it like offsets that perception yeah like two hundred dollars now is a lot less than two hundred dollars in 2001 but you know, people aren't making feel like it all the time. <laughs> people aren't making that vast amount more that makes it seem, you know, that way. Right. Like the Wii, the Wii sold at a, at a scale we couldn't have anticipated. 
And that's because it was a cheap console that was accessible to a lot of people and offered something unique. If the Wii had launched at $400 or whatever, even like what a $400 console is now with inflation like deducted, it still wouldn't have sold anywhere near as well because the barrier of entry for the Wii was so low, both in terms of cost and past experience with video and games. And that's definitely one of the reasons the Switch is doing so well right now. Like I, I feel like we haven't mentioned the Switch at all during this conversation since it like it released like three years prior to these consoles and i think it's technically in a different generation i'm not too sure how it all lines up but like the switch is one of the highest selling consoles of all time and it's 200 dollars less than the current gen for xbox and sony which is like i think one of the biggest points of why it's selling so much better yeah like it's hardware it's it's hardware is definitely worse but you can still play a lot of incredible games on that hardware because they're being developed for that hardware. Yeah. I mean, the reason we're not talking about Nintendo in this conversation is just Nintendo does not operate the same way that Sony and Microsoft operate. Nintendo isn't out here, you know, cannibalizing every development studio they can find and turning them into Nintendo, you know, development studio. Like, they are working with these story development teams. I mean, you hear about it. The team that worked on the legend of Zelda tears of the kingdom is largely the same team that worked on the legend of Zelda in, in 1986 or whatever. Like the people that are working on Nintendo games have experience and generally like they know what they're doing. (laughs) The people in charge of steering the ship have a vision in mind, right? Like they know what they are trying to do and they know what they need to do it. And a big part of that is that like they, they operate a lot more conservatively than Sony and Microsoft. And I think that's really paying off right now because they're not trying to change things up. They're not trying to reinvent the wheel. They know what works and they're continuing to try to work with it. And I think that, you know, even their biggest games are, I would say their biggest games are like, double a development right whereas compared to what triple a is at otherwise i I think nintendo generally does double a development with triple a ambitions and everyone else is just trying to throw as much money at the problems or the games as possible and hoping that things will work out for them well we got to focus on quadruple a now it's so funny to say that immediately before dropping such a huge flop yeah it's it's so funny to me too that like I have seen so many people talking about how everything about Skull and Bones is just across the board a, a failure. But then there's reviews from these major publications that are like, it's better than you could ever imagine. Just like, I am almost positive it's not. <laughs> yeah. They're like, if you thought that Sid Meier's Pirates was good, this is going to blow you away. <laughs> you can play as the pirates now. I don't know. I, unless you guys have more to say, I, I feel like we've kind of talked this topic into the ground. Yeah, that's that's all oh, I've for got sure. to say. <laughs> yeah. It was two weeks until some other major development happens. <laughs> right. Uh, can't wait to come back in two weeks and tell you what new way the gaming industry is, is absolutely going uh, into the garbage. Well, I think that that means it's time to pull the plug. <laughs> Jackson, what is something else that you have been into? Well, it's been about a week since I've played it now, but 
It's hard to get really into Injustice 2 there for a minute. Um, historically, game. I've not been one for fighting games. The closest to a fighting game I've ever been into is Smash Bros, which is very different from any other sort of major fighting game. But uh, one of my friends wanted to play Injustice 2, so I thought I'd give it a shot. And I have to say, Dr. Fate's pretty fun to play as. Sorry, I'm a dead shot, man. It's... It's definitely fun. It's it's very much out of my comfort zone. Um and like very much took a lot of getting used to. Uh first week of playing it, I, I didn't know any combos. I couldn't do basically anything. I was defenseless. By like the third or fourth week of playing it, like I could I could pull off some combos at this point, chaining different combos together, and like it just started to click a lot more than it had with previous fighting games. And I think now maybe there's a good chance I'll finally get into those for a good bit. I mean, I think the Injustice and Mortal Kombat are kind of... They're fighting games for people like us, right? People that don't like fighting games all that much and just want to kind of dip their toes in every once in a while because the craziest combos will only be like six button presses and you can do all of them pretty easily with just like standard D-pad inputs. You don't have to worry about like diagonals or anything like that. You can pause the game and see literally all of your combos at any given moment. I think it's really forgiving in a lot of regards. Yeah, for sure. I think that's what makes Injustice 2 so fun to me, is the combination of that and the fact that it's characters that I've been interested in and loved for my entire life. Like, no matter how good a Mortal Kombat game is, I'm not going to care about it beyond, like, oh, maybe a DLC fighter will be somewhat interesting. Injustice 2, I can play as Batman. <laughs> like, <laughs> And it has yeah. these ridiculous characters, like... uh I don't remember if Green Arrow's in Injustice 2, but he, he was in Injustice 1 and then Deadshot. Like, characters that completely break the fighting game mold by being incredibly annoying. Aquaman. Yeah. yeah. Aquaman kind of fits in, too. They have these, like, ridiculous ranged attacks that you can just kind of spam and somehow make it through matches. Yeah. Aquaman specifically got this one attack that, like... It's very hard to read if it's happening or not, where it just... The tentacle one? Yeah, the tentacle one, where it just shoots a tentacle out, like, bottom of your feet, which can be blocked by just crouching down. But, like, it's very hard to tell if that move is happening, because it's the moment there's any sort of animation for it, it's almost instant that it happens. I think that attack you can block with uh, either block. It's just, it's kind of hard to read, because it happens yeah. really quickly. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't have too much to say at the moment. Um, it's been nice to finally like get into a genre of games that I've never really been into. Next, you got to try Tekken. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen those combo boards? Like the images that people will make where it's just like, these are the most important combos you need to know. Yeah. And it's like a super dense PowerPoint slide <laughs> where it's just like, here's here's every single combo you need to know. And it's literally like 400 different things. And they will have like fairly complicated uh, inputs and stuff like that that you need to just remember all the time. And I'm like, there's no way that I could ever get into Tekken. Oh yeah, I no those like super insane combos. Uh, they they are not anything that I could do. And then I'll watch a donkey video where he just plays as a bear and uses the same three attacks over <laughs> and over, and it works out for him. So yeah, um, you never know. But but yeah, Injustice Two, I've had a good good bit of fun with um I, i've liked it i recommend it to anyone that likes uh fighting games dc characters or the first injustice don't bother with the story it's bad um but, but that, that's all i've got to say about injustice so jason what have you been up to 
uh, I've been kind of on the opposite end of things. Uh, instead of playing a high octane fighting game, I've been playing Persona 3 Reload. And let me tell you, after it's been like two or three years since I've played Persona 5, it's nice to kind of get into another Persona game. I tried getting into the Persona 4, but I've been, I think part of it was that I was playing it on a handheld and I just have a harder time trying to yeah. focus on it. But Persona 3 Reload, I picked it up on my Xbox. I don't really know why. I didn't I didn't know it was going to be on Game Pass, so I I bought it. I that's <laughs> I don't know why I bought a game that was going to be free on Game Pass on Xbox of all places, but uh I've been enjoying it. It's been nice getting to like familiarize myself with a new set of characters. I think that the combat is a little bit harder generally than Persona 5 was. Persona 5, especially in the beginning, was way too easy. It's a little disappointing that Persona 3 doesn't have dungeons the same way that Persona 5 did. Uh, you know, in Persona 5, the story was basically split into five or six different parts where you were trying to uh, steal the heart and the desires of, you know, like a big villain for that arc. In Persona 3, instead of going into an individual person's palace like in that, there's just one big collective palace called Tartarus. And it is like a hundred floors tall and you're just kind of running through the different floors of that. And for the most part, they're, they're randomly generated for one or at least procedurally generated and very samey. Like each set of 20 floors or so is basically the exact same style. And then once you get to like a major point in the story and you're at a certain level on the tower, then you'll move to a new area and it'll look different, but it's generally just new tiles on the same automatically generated stuff. It, it can get a little samey. Yeah. Which I've heard even still, it's a big improvement of what it was actually like in the original game. Yeah. <laughs> Cause at least this time around, there are some special things you can encounter to kind of spice it up a little bit. Whereas in the original release, it was straight up the same every single floor. I like the characters generally. I think that's definitely a strong point. It's a lot of the same archetypes that you saw in Persona 5, but they're different enough that I think it's still kind of interesting. It's also really funny to me the way that new Persona users will get introduced in the story, because in Persona 5, it was generally like their ability to use a Persona was awakened during the story, like you saw it happen, or at the very least, like it was characters that you were directly interacting with in the story that would eventually either awaken to their persona or they would already have it in persona three it's literally just like there's a character you meet on the first day and he's just this random guy and a few days later in the story one of your i guess dorm mates like someone else that lives in the same dorm building but in a, in a different room he just like shows up one evening and he's like, yeah, I found this guy while I was out. He can use a persona. Anyway, he's moving in. Uh, and from my understanding, that happens at least two more times. And it, it's, it's already happened at least once for me. I think there's also a robot that can use a persona and a dog that can use a persona. <laughs> it's not like Teddy in Persona 4 or Morgana either. Like, it's just straight up a dog. It barks. <laughs> I mean, I haven't played much of this game yet. Um, it's one that I, I kind of want to just, like, hold off on until I can put way more time into it all at once. 
I don't know. I just I have a hard time seeing it hit the highs of Persona 5, so I'm trying hard to sort of compartmentalize that. <laughs> like, this is just a different thing with some similar ideas. <laughs> yeah. And... I mean, I think the gameplay is really similar, and like I said, the archetypes can be for the characters, but I think it has enough different to offer, and yeah. I mean, it has the strengths of Persona 5, and like especially getting to familiarize yourself with a new area and kind of make it home, and determining how you want to spend your time each day right like the social sim elements are very good and beyond the fact that it's just a single randomly generated uh palace i still think that it's a lot of fun doing the the fighting (laughs) exploring portion getting to outfit your different characters so i i don't know i guess there hasn't been as many like big moments as persona 5 had Whereas I, I feel like Persona 5 is a lot better about like the ebb and flow of the story. Whereas this story feels yeah. a little more low-key. But that's a lot about Persona 3. Jordan, what have you been up to? Well, uh, I won't go into this for too long because we've already done an entire episode about this game. Um, but I decided to replay Final Fantasy VII Remake ahead of Final Fantasy VII Rebirth's release, which is later this week. Probably the same day this episode is going live. I I'm really kind of lukewarm on remake, especially after a replay, because like I do think it has so many good things about it. I think it has really fun combat. It was so cool to see this world expanded upon. I don't think it makes very good use of the player's time, and it makes replays especially tedious. You spend a lot of time going down very, very linear sections just to get between fight and fight and fight, and then a long conversation where they just tell you all the things you already know. Um, but one thing I did decide to, to dip into that I haven't before was the expansion that came out with the PS5, uh, re-release of the game. Um, the remake intergrade, I think's what it's called, uh, where you play as Yuffie, one of the party members from the original Final Fantasy VII who was not present in remake. And I liked that a lot. I think Yuffie was a lot of fun to play as, and I think they added a lot of really interesting mechanics to kind of spice things up. I also think it just was a little better about like the environments were a little more interesting and exploring them was a little more involved it still kind of fell into that same issue of a lot of corridors but i think the fact that it was shorter and a little more to the point kind of helped that a little bit i think it had some really cool side content especially the fort condor minigame which uh is really really fun and i'm really excited is is back in final fantasy 7 rebirth uh, I don't really have too much more to say about it than that. If you liked remake, you'll probably like the expansion, but yeah, you know, I, it it is it is what it is. It, it was all right. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't bad by any means. The, I mean, the story was a little just bland, but like I wasn't expecting much from it, especially knowing it's a very short DLC. I I, I think playing as Yuffie was pretty fun though, and I like the synergy mechanic. I thought the synergy mechanic was really cool. Just the fact that you could basically have your party member focus on the same enemies and use attacks at around the same time as you you'd gain bonus attacks that you could use while you were in the synergy mode it was all really good um yeah is that gonna be in rebirth do we know i don't know that they've shown whether or not it will i i hope it is there are like new synergy attacks though so i'm Mm. assuming something like that yeah you you might get paired up with more unplay like non-playable characters more than you did i don't uh, think so Oh, who knows? I, I just think that you'd be able to use synergy with the playable characters. <laughs> I really like Yuffie. I 
Yuffie's one of those characters that I've always known about from being a big Kingdom Hearts fan, but like I'd never really played Final Fantasy VII, so I wasn't super familiar with her, and she's not in most of the like side Final Fantasy VII content, or at least she's not like super important in any of it. So it was nice getting to actually be introduced to the character. She has a very different vibe than everyone else in the main party. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of the Totally Biased Media Podcast. Uh, if you would like to reach out to us, there are a handful of ways you can do that. First, on Twitter at TBMcast. Second, on Instagram at Totally Biased Media. And third, you can send an email to totallybiasedmedia at gmail.com. Uh, we have a lot of big games coming up. The next, next real big one is going to be Final Fantasy VII Rebirth. Um, we'll be doing an episode sometime in the near future. We don't know exactly when just yet. Cause it's going to be a very big game. Um, and our next episode is going to be coming out only a week after it releases. So I don't know that that's enough time. But, uh, you know, send us your thoughts on any of our socials or to our email. We'd love to read your review on the podcast. Uh, also, we stream on Twitch at twitch.tv slash totallybiasedmedia. Uh, we are in the year of the gear. We are playing through the Metal Gear Solid series. And, uh, you know, we're, we're coming up on the end of Metal Gear Solid 1. Um, we have a lot more Metal Gear ahead of us, though. And if you'd like to see us stream some other stuff along the way, you can send suggestions to our socials or our email for that as well. I think that just about does it. So, for the Totally Biased Media Podcast, I'm Jordan Walkup. I'm Jason Simmons. And I'm Jackson Walkup. And you just felt the bias. Thank you, everyone. Goodbye. Goodbye.